0: Hey, this is your girl Mitzi and this is Mitzi. Let's think about it. And I was able to bring back Gramps because his mind was so interesting. I had to pick it some more. <laughs> Gramps, <laughs> thank, you. thank you for coming on again. And what are we talking about today?
1: Well, we can talk about my first book, which is Secrets of Retailing, How to Be Walmart. We can talk about the homeless. We can talk about anything you'd like to talk about. Entrepreneurs, <laughs> what makes you excited today?
0: Well, to be honest, I am interested in, in your first book, The Secrets of Retailing. What do you mean by that? Is there really secrets to retailing?
1: Well, let me I don't know if you've seen the book. That's what it looks like. Yeah. Secrets of Retailing: How have to Beat Walmart. So I guess let me give you a little background of why I even wrote this book. I, In my business career, I spent most of my time in big companies and retailing and wholesaling. But then as I got a little older, I said, I decided I wanted to start a couple of my own companies. So the first company I started was a chain of hair salons. And I built up this company to 11 salons around the valley here, which is in the Phoenix area. And you kind of say, why hair salon? What are you opening hair salons for? Well, exactly. (laughs) in my corporate career, I used to run a department store in downtown Miami. It's called Burdine's, which is part of Federated, which is now as Macy's. And so when I was running this uh, department store in Miami, I noticed that the most profitable department was the hair salons. And you know, the reason being is you know people would come there every week, every couple of weeks uh, to get their hair done, the nails, and there was no inventory. Whereas in the rest of the store, you know there's lots of inventory and this, you would only buy a dress once a quarter or things like that, but get your hair done all the time. So I said, this is going to be a profitable business. Let me figure that out. So I started opening up a chain of uh, stores and I opened up two types of stores when I went into a mall. One was the budget where you can get your haircut for $8.99 and, you know, year in and out. There's plenty of those kinds of stores around the country. But on the Mm -hmm. other side of the mall, I would open up a real salon that had, you know, masseuse and tanning bed and, you know, nails and all kinds of things that you normally do in a a regular salon. You know, the customers didn't know that the same guy owned both kinds of salons, but we (laughs) were able to capture that market. So I started a whole, a chain of salons. I built it up to 11. At the same time, I was starting an internet business and that internet business started in my house. Uh, You know, one time I had 10 people working in the house, had wires on the outside of the house, had wires on the inside of the house. You know, we had everything going and finally moved over to a building to, to start moving on this. But the concept of the internet business is that, you know, we were seeing that small retailers, small businesses were getting killed by the chains. Because they didn't have the same opportunities as chains did to find the right products at the right price. So Mm -hmm. the internet business that I started that eventually we took public as a public company now is a company that creates products for the moms and pops so they could survive and thrive against the chains. So we had a little over 300,000 products. If you walked into a Macy's or a Target or a Walmart, we carried all the categories of products you find in those kinds of stores. So, you know, we started to build this business and it was right in the beginning of when the internet was just developing back into the early 2000s. And so we found this niche to go after small businesses. And so what was happening at the time is, you know, because we were building this business, I was getting phone calls, 30 phone calls a week from our customers saying, how do I do this? What do I need to do here? You know, what do I do that? So that's what the book is all about. It's about, you know, there's 15 chapters. Each chapter is about a different thing about how to open a business, run a business. So for instance, is how to find your real estate's one chapter. Another chapter is where do you find your products and what do you sell? Another chapter is how to market your products on the internet and how to market your products traditional way. Another chapter would be on uh, the location and everything else that means. So anyway, there's 15 chapters with the last chapter being an exit. So in other words, you build up this great business, what do you do with it? And so that's how that book evolved. And so what happened was, On that particular book, Arianna Huffington read my book and asked me to start to contribute to the Huffington Post. So I've got about 100 articles on the Huffington Post on all kinds of subjects for small businesses, entrepreneurs. But what happened is all businesses evolve, you know, what happened in our business on the internet that uh, when Katrina hit, which was, believe it or not, 20 years ago, when Katrina hit down in Louisiana and in Mississippi, you know, all of a sudden, because we were so dominant on the internet, we had thousands and thousands of keywords that were organically ranked one, two, or three. So we popped up at the top of all the lists. But all of a sudden, we started getting orders from churches and schools for all kinds of things to help the people, you know, underwear, socks, toothpaste, toothbrushes. And, you know, when they opened up the trailers that we're living in, all these things they needed for the kitchen and the bathroom and the bedroom. And all of a sudden it opened up our eyes. There's a whole underserved market out there, the nonprofits in this world, because they would come to us because our products price was, were wholesale closeout products because we were selling them to retailers to be resold. So it gave these nonprofits a chance to really stretch their dollars and serve more people. And so that's how we got involved into the nonprofit world. And that's how I got involved in, you know, doing a lot of my articles and so forth about the nonprofits. So that's just a quick recap of where this first book came from.
0: Wow. Yeah. It sounds like, It came through a lot of life experiences, but I think that's where authors get our information and all of our materials by is what we've lived by and what we've gone through. And I think that's really interesting how you are able to really break it down. And each category of starting a business and understanding businesses is basically in that book of 15 chapters. It doesn't even seem a lot when you say it, but I feel that it probably holds a lot of good information in there.
1: Yeah, hopefully. Yeah, hopefully. I mean, when you go through life, there's certain things that affect you more than others. And when you think about your legacy and think about, the, are you making an impact? So I went on my national book tour for this book. And as I was going, I was in uh, the Borders and Barnes and Nobles and some independent stores. And you know, as I was doing it and talking to people, they, you know, they would come up to me and say, this chapter changed my life. And it's like, as a writer, you just can't ask anything more than that. You know, it's not about the money. It's about if you can make an impact in how people think and what they do and their future and their family, that's what it's all about. That's what writing is all about. So no matter what all in life, you know, those are the kinds of memories that really keep me going.
0: Yeah. I guess my next question is when you were working for the Huffington Post and when you were dealing with nonprofits and, you know, the homeless and the elderly, were there certain aspects that were more favorable or more impactful that made you like, wow, I'm very grateful for being able to be a part of this? Did you ever have that moment?
1: Well, you know, think about each one of the issues that are facing us today and how we explore them and how we see them. Let's, let's, you know, we're talking about the homeless. Let's talk about homeless kids, okay? Because you know, my children's book is based on kids. So, you know, it's based on little kids. You know, luckily, they're not homeless. They got great moms and dads. There are thousands and hundreds of thousands of others that are. And if you think about the government recommends, says that there are 1.28 million. It's 1.28 million homeless students today in our school system. You think about that. That's a scary number because what happens is, you know, when the average number of people that graduate high school, 86% of the kids that start high school graduate. So that means 14% don't, but 86% do. But when you're looking at the homeless population of kids, that kids, children that are experiencing true homelessness, in other words, they're living out of their cars, you know, they they don't have a permanent place to live, only 68% of them graduate high school. Now think about that. 86% totally in the U.S., but only 68% of the homeless kids actually graduate high school. Now, it's a little better for kids that are in poverty that have some place to live because 80% of them graduate. So if you're still in poverty, but you have a place to live, you got a four out of five chance of graduating, 80%. But if you are, don't have a place to live and you're homeless in this country, you, know, you only have a, a 68%. And you think about that, that haunts you the rest of your life. How do you make up for that? How do you, you know, obviously everybody wants these kids to get their GEDs and so forth, but how can you make up for that dramatic difference? So this country has a crisis and that's, what we're just talking about the homeless, but that's one of the major crises that we have to address.
0: No, I agree because I was in that percentage. I was in that 58% because when I was in seventh grade, my mom and my two sisters, we were homeless and we were moving from city to city to different shelters just to try to keep a roof over our head. And when the shelters were packed, we had to live out in our car. And when our family couldn't keep us anymore because things got tight or conflict or whatever the case may be. So I was in that 68%. I barely graduated. I was barely in school. And I feel that I am not that intelligent because every time I went to a school, they were always repeating the same subject from last school. So I feel like I miss a whole big section of information and knowledge just because of moving around a lot and just because of being homeless and I had to learn survival tactics versus education at a very young age and like you said how does that affect you as an adult how does that affect you long term well it does I think it's something that will always affect me it's something that will always replay in my mind and remember what I went through and remember those feelings because that was real to me you know so I understand exactly what you say it's a big problem because if I went through that. I know that three houses or four or five houses down, there's somebody else who's going through that too.
1: And if you think uh, the solution is for government to help with uh, building more affordable housing so that more people can live in it. But I heard just yesterday, at least in my community, that there's 30% more homeless people today than before COVID. I mean, and, I think,
0: a, yeah. and I think the biggest part of it is qualifications. The qualifications just to get a house in the regular market is hard because you have to meet a certain percentage of like how much you bring into income. You got to have references. You have to bring the first month's rent, last month's rent, plus security deposit. in certain places now they're just raising rent almost every three to six months. And then if you don't get a good place, then you deal with a slumlord and then you're in poverty. It's still hard to get through those places. So it's like qualifications just to get home is hard. And then once you're in the housing department and the government assistance, it's no better either because the waiting list is ridiculous. People are on that list for almost two to three years sometimes, depending on the city. So that homelessness is only going to get higher and higher and higher because not a lot of people are able to meet those qualifications.
1: Well, on top of all of what you just said, you know, it, there is no incentive for builders to buy and to build affordable homes today. You know, You're right. if you step back and think about it, you know, the price of homes has gone up, you know, 20, 30 percent, depending on what market you are, just in the last year or so. And so builders are going to concentrate on where they can get the most money. And at the same time, you know, the cost of materials has gone up 20, 30%. So to build an affordable house is almost impossible. And then on top of all that, you know, there's a shortage of professionals in the building market to build these houses. So it's not going to get any better, you know, it's It's not. And our government has got to step in on this because it's not going to happen in the free marketplace because the builders are going to go where they can make money. So this is a scary problem now. You add on to all this that we are the, the pandemic has children's reading much less than before. And there are all kinds of reasons cause this. Obviously, schools closed for a couple of years. And when you're in poverty, you don't have the access to the internet as, as if you're not in poverty. So you don't have the ability to learn online as much as everyone else. But you know, when you think of those numbers and the United Nations, the educational, scientific, and cultural organization, they, it's called UNESCO just released that there are 584 million, let alone the million we have here in the U.S. that are homeless, but 584 million children worldwide are experiencing reading difficulties, okay? Now, how's that compare? Well, before the pandemic, that number was 460 million. So there is a 20% increase in the world, including the U.S., in the world that uh, reads can read less than they could, just they don't know how to have the uh, right reading things. And, you know, that wipes out two decades of advancements in the world of teaching children how to read, you know, when you think about that. Also, the Stanford the University, Stanford graduate school, they released a study recently that second and third graders, okay second and third graders, uh, reading fluency is now 30% behind what they were expected to be typically a couple of years before, 30% behind. Now reading fluency is fundamental for academic development you know, more broadly because problems with the skills may interfere with students' ability to kind of learn additional other subjects as they make their way up until the later grades. So what happens is you know, going from third to fourth grade, you're going from learning how to read. So you learn how to read first, second, third grade. And then when you get into fourth grade, you're kind of learning, reading how to learn. So you have to be able to have the concept of reading something to learn, whether it's mathematics or civics. And that's the scary part. You know, we've, we've got this homeless, uh, which you unfortunately were involved in, you know, that is just adding to it. We've got where we can't build our homes fast enough to help the homeless. So we've got, uh, you know, a million kids now that are homeless. They have no place to live here in the U.S. And then they're falling behind. This mm-hmm. is a scary time. This is a scary time for these kids because you know, this generation should be the best generation this country's ever produced. But if we can't solve these problems, this is going to haunt us for years.
0: It is because it's going to affect us for years. It's going to affect us for a very long time until we are able to resolve this issue. And even if they create a plan, there has to be an order that has to be implemented for this because if people have gone lazy. They just feel that, oh, somebody else will take care of it. Oh, the teachers at school would take care of it because sometimes the parents don't have the time or the parents don't even want to have the time to sit down with their child and teach them something. You know, I I was watching news during this pandemic and parents were upset that their kids had to be home because they had to be home, you know, and they had to spend time with them and they had to watch them and a lot of the time, parents let their kids go to school and uh, expect the teachers to discipline them and, and redirect them and on top of learning. So that's a lot on the teachers as well, you know, and for seven to eight hours of a day in school periods, you know, to try to push all of that on a kid is overwhelming, you know, and I think a lot of the times people don't realize that children, once they become overwhelmed, they just start blocking information off because they're stressed out, you know, they refuse to take any more orders or any more information or any more anything that doesn't make them feel good inside and then they're going off of their feelings you know and then that's when we have to catch them like you said what type of book do you want to read that's their feelings you know like that's when we have to teach them like or suggest to them like what are you feeling right now so that we can go in that direction but you know that's just my opinion but I don't know what do you think
1: Oh, yeah. You know, and going back to what we originally were discussing, which is my first book, you know, secrets retailing and how to beat Walmart. You know, all America is based on entrepreneurs, people that want to start businesses, people that want to grow businesses. You know, And so if we've got this huge percentage of kids that are undereducated, they're not going to become entrepreneurs. They're not going to be the ones that grow up. You know, when you think about it in today's world, this may be the best time to be an entrepreneur. Okay, this may be the best time to start a business. So you need that knowledge, at least at the beginning, you need to be able to do math to start a business. And why do I say this is a great time to start a business? Well, the internet gives you the opportunity to sell things that you didn't have you know, 20 years ago. Let's say you live in a small town in America, you open up a little shop. Now your customer is the base that live in your neighborhood, that live in your town. But now that you have the internet, Your customer is all over the world. If you can figure out what kind of product to sell and figure out the kind of products that people want. So for instance, in your town, there may be only 20 people that like the product that you decide you want to sell. But you take a thousand more towns and only 20 people in those towns, and all of a sudden you have a huge market. And so, you know, that's the other thing we got to worry about. We can't afford not to educate our youngest kids because they are the future; they're the ones that make this country run. You know, America has 31 million entrepreneurs, small businesses. Think about that—31 million. Now, we've got 20,000 large businesses. You know, the ones that everybody knows about, IBM, and all the huge ones on Walmart. Those are all the big businesses. But the majority of America is made up of 31 million small businesses that, that do their own thing. Yeah, uh, we have to be able to feed those the upcoming generations into that. That's why we have to educate these kids. That's why we got to make sure that the kids on the fringe, you know, has as much opportunity as the kids that have privileges, you know, because... Entrepreneurs really are the backbone of what you can do. So if you wanted to, if you became an entrepreneur in small town America, you can open a store or you go on to Etsy and sell your products. You go on to Amazon, you go on to eBay, you go, there's all kinds of places that you can sell your products besides in your local town. So we've got to get these kids, all of our kids motivated to figure out how they can be successful. And if we don't house them and we don't educate them, then uh, this is going to be a scary time for the U.S.
0: Yes. And I think the one of the saddest things that I hear people say is that they want to start a business, but they don't know where to begin. They don't know how to start or they have no ideas because all they know is the struggles. Read and, the book. <laughs> and, all, and all they have to do is just read the book to figure out where to begin. And if you could three good pieces of advice to start a business, what are those three good pieces? Besides, of course, read your book. <laughs>
1: well, let's take a look at why businesses fail. Okay, because that really is the reason of, of what you got to think about. You know, what happened? 50% of businesses fail in the first five years. That means one out of every two. So even though it sounds glamorous to be an entrepreneur, you got a 50% chance of failing. Okay, so why do these businesses fail? Okay, there's three, three basic reasons why businesses fail. So if any of your listeners are thinking about becoming an entrepreneur, please kind of regard this as you're thinking. The first reason and the biggest reason, and 42% of the reason that these businesses fail is they don't have enough money to begin with. When you're opening up a business, you've got to figure out that for six months, you're not going to have sales. Now, hopefully you will have sales, but you've got to be able to have a nest egg back there that for six months, you're going to only have expenses. You're not going to have income. So you have to accumulate enough dollars to sustain a business for six months without any sales. Now, some people can do it on their own. Some people can go to the friends. Some people go to your relatives. But you've got to come up with that kind of dollars. Because if you don't have enough dollars sitting in the bank to sustain you while you build your business, then you're going to fail. Okay? So keep that in the back of your mind. Make sure that you don't just say, I'm going to open a business and you open one up today day and you only have $20 in the bank. You're going to make it. You'll be one of the 50% that doesn't make it. Now, another reason why businesses fail is you don't hire the right team you don't hire the right people to work with you. Lots of entrepreneurs, the biggest thing you've got to do when you're an entrepreneur is you got to realize what are your weaknesses. Mm -hmm. And you have got to find other people to take care of those weaknesses. So let's take me, for example. Okay. Yeah. I love marketing and merchandising and all that kind of stuff, but I don't like accounting. Okay. I mean, if you stick me in a room for eight hours with a spreadsheet, I will absolutely climb the walls. But Other people love that. So make sure that when you're opening a business, you know, that you hire somebody or you work with someone who loves accounting because. You, as an entrepreneur, want to spend all your time in doing things that you like because that's when you're going to be productive. Because otherwise, you're just be, you know, just treading water. You know, I can't draw a straight line. Okay. I, I just can't. So I've got to find somebody who has graphic ability that can make these wonderful pictures and all that because it's not going to, be, if I just have to do that for eight hours, we're going to get nowhere. It's just going to stand there. Even though I've been pretty much a, uh, on the internet and a pioneer in the internet business. Yeah, you know, I don't know how to write code. So I've got to find people that can actually write code. I can tell them what it should look like. I can tell them the message we want, but I can't write code. So when you are starting a business, look yourself in the mirror and say, "Okay, here's what I'm great at, but here's what I'm not really good at." Because you can sink a business by trying to do the things you're not good at that takes away everything else that you're good for. At. So that's the number two reason why businesses fail is that entrepreneurs don't recognize they have to be able to you know get people that are smarter than they are to do some of the functions that they do. You know? And the third reason, and probably the main reason that businesses fail is there's really not a market for the product that you want to sell or the item you want to sell or the service that you want to give. And the reason being is, I learned because I was a buyer early in my career. You don't buy for yourself. You don't buy your favorite thing. You buy for what your customers want. So you've always got to keep that in mind that you may think this is the greatest product, but if nobody else wants it, it's not going to happen. No matter how great a marketer you are, how bad a good communicator you are, how many things you give away, if it's not a product or service that other people want, then you're going to fail. So
0: sorry that made me think how would you know what type of product people want you know i mean how would you know when if a market's too flooded with a product that people do want like how would you weigh that out because that's really confusing because if you sell somebody to do something that they love and they love to sell headphones for instance but nobody wants headphones right now they want like little barely bluetooth things how would you go about that you know what i mean like i don't know that just kind of
1: no, I mean, that's a very, This is a good question. What you do is test market, okay? I'm sure you've okay. seen these, like, for instance, when they, uh, before they introduce a new television show, they test market to a group of people. Do you like it? You don't oh. like it. Uh, what do you think's missing? So, forth. So you create a test, and you can do this in your own town. You know, get a dozen people together and tell them what you want to do and see what kind of reactions you have. That's the smartest way to, that's the least expensive way that if it's a bad product, you're going to lose the least amount of money is if you can get a test group of people to tell you the truth about it. You may have to, but it gives you that. So that's what you have to do. Because again, the secret, the heart of my book, the secrets reaching how to beat Walmart is to find little niches that other people are not in the Walmart's not in. So for instance, it could yeah. be petite sizes. It could be large sizes. It could be all kinds of little niches that you can get into that not everybody's doing because you're right. If you're selling the same thing that the guy down the street selling, you're not going to be successful because you're going to be the second guy in and they're yeah. already ahead of you. So that's why it's so important. To, and that's why all these businesses fail is they don't analyze it. I guess something new and different and then how am I going to market it?
0: Yeah, I agree. Thank you for... Because now it makes sense. You know, if you test your product and just see if people like it, then that'll be better because there's no point of opening a restaurant if you really can't cook. (laughs) The rest of the world don't like your food. Perfect. (laughs) Your family says they like it. Oh, yeah, it's good, mom. Doesn't mean you need to start a restaurant. Exactly. (laughs) That's funny. Do you think the elderly are affected by entrepreneurs because they're bringing different products that are not what they may be looking for?
1: The elderly, in other words, you're saying older customers?
0: Yes. Like the older customers, like beyond 80. (laughs)
1: Well, again, we got in America, people that are 65 and older are 16% of the market, okay? Mm -hmm. Which means under 65, you know, are 84% of the market. So I don't even think if you're trying to introduce a, a new product, you can kind of ignore that upper end, because that's only a small percentage, you want to figure out where is the heart of the business. And so that's why I wouldn't really unless it's something to do with, you know, people that are elderly and getting around and, in you know, wheelchair, all kinds of things that are really geared for them, I would concentrate on the 84% of the market that's under 65.
0: That's smart. That's smart. Especially if people aren't sure who's the main market, that's good to know that it's usually under 65 years old. That's good to know. Because, you know, I know a lot of people who are actually trying to start a business, they're trying to start a clothing line, or, you know, they're trying to do their own like care stuff. And it's different, because when I see it from the outside, you don't really know the details that goes in it, you don't know the struggles, and you don't know what's really going on. And what you're telling me, it sounds like there's a lot that goes into actually starting a business. Like there's more than just signing your name on the dotted line.
1: (laughs) Yeah, and you got to be able to Again, remember 50% of businesses fail. So you got a one in two chance of of being successful. So yeah, it's not for everybody. Most most people don't want to take that 50-50 chance. That's a big gamble.
0: And I think that's the reason why a lot of people stay in a nine to five job is because of that gamble of starting your own business and knowing that you may fail. But also knowing that if you're successful, you can be in the top of your field, right? I mean, I don't know necessarily how it works, but if you make it to the 50% that actually do work and are successful, isn't it just, you're just up there? I mean, I don't know how to explain it, but
1: you know what I mean? I gotta tell you, when I was starting my businesses... The one thing that kept me up at night, the one that this thing is used to haunt me is, am I going to make payroll on Friday? Think about that. I mean, if you're running a business, you're an entrepreneur and you have people working for you and with you, you are responsible for their families. And so you've got to ask yourself that question. Am I going to make payroll? Because if you don't, you're not only affecting you, you're affecting lots and lots of other people. That's the scary part of being an entrepreneur. You know, so I guess even before, if you want to be an entrepreneur, ask yourself that question first. Because you don't want to mess up other people's lives.
0: Yeah. I mean, when you said it like that, kind of made it more real. Like, oh, that's kind of scary because you can affect other people's lives, other people's families, you know, and especially if you're someone who's working for a small business, you know, you're going to take that risk knowing that sales might be short. Or as an entrepreneur, did you ever have to sacrifice your own check to give to your employees?
1: Oh, yeah. I would say probably every entrepreneur had to do that. In other words, in order to keep the business open, because businesses are seasonal, you know, you don't get the same sales every week, year after year, because you got Christmas, you got Easter, you got summer. And so you've got to be able to going back to the thought to make sure you got six months of dollars sitting in the bank before you even open a business. You know, that is what it all comes to, because, you know, if you close your door and you don't pay people, you, know, you got to live with that the rest of your life. And that's something I don't think anybody wants to live with.
0: That's very true. That's very true. Oh, I didn't even realize the time. Wow. How time flies when we're having a good conversation, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. Is there anything else that you like to add or before we wrap up the show, any last minute advice for those listeners out
1: there? Well, if, you know, part of our conversation was on the homeless, the underprivileged, and if you have any means that you could help them, you know, whether it's donating product or, you know, you know, things from your, that you can do much like the, what's going on in the Ukraine and the Polish, take people into your home, you know, help them out. if You can have the heart to do that. It, this is what it's all about. And that's what America is all about. And so we all just need to pitch in now and help because, you know, we just went through two years of COVID, which set us back. We got to make up for that. You know? yeah. and, so, and We got to make up for it quickly.
0: Yeah. And I think just because I was just um, listening to our last our last interview, and it's kind of like how you said, now we got to ask ourselves, the adults have to ask ourselves, what are we going to do That's something nice? And that right there you know just bringing people into your home giving somebody a meal any extra clothes that you don't use or extra food canned foods that you don't have in the house that you know you're not going to use you know donate it you know donate it to a cause because even yesterday i was watching tv at night and i seen go kitchen you know foundation a nonprofit that's actually helping the polish and the ukraine and trying to bring people peace of mind that they're going to at least have a roof over their head clothes on their back and some food to eat And, and if people can just give each other that peace of mind that we're together in this, then I think it would really help a lot. Great. So thank you.
1: Well, thank you for inviting me.